0: Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary.
1: Welcome to the Table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Darrell Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendrick Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And our topic today is part of our Global Perspective series, and we're focusing in today on the country of South Africa. And we have two guests, uh, Michael Van Andel, who who, uh, is in uh, Johannesburg area, right, and is coming to us by Zoom from there, and then Neil Henry who's in Cape Town, which is um, some distance away, so we've got two different locations that are involved here. Michael is uh, a business person who also heads up a ministry called Truth Walk, which is a discipleship ministry designed to teach um, people Bible studies and to work in the faith and work area in South Africa. They also host a variety of conferences that have been held. So Michael, thank you for being with us today.
0: Good to be with you, well, with you again, Daryl.
1: Yep. And then Neil Henry is a pastor at a church in Lavender Hill, which is in the Cape area, and also teaches as a professor at the Bible Institute of South Africa. And uh, and Neil works in uh, an area that is... um, that that is really a challenge makes for a challenging ministry, and we'll be talking more about that down the road. So, Neil, thank you for being a part of our of our time
2: today. Thank you, Donald. Great to be with you.
1: And so uh, let's just dive in. Let's talk a little bit about South Africa as a country. Um, people may or may not be very aware of it. Of course, it's, it's at the very bottom of the continent of Africa. Um, in fact, if you go there and you go into uh, Neil's part of the country, it's not a very long drive till you get to the Cape of Good Hope, where you can see where people come around the Horn of Africa. Um, beautiful part of the world, for sure. Uh, and uh, let's, uh, let's talk about the country of South Africa. A little bit about its origins um, uh, And I don't know who to ask the history question to So, uh, Neil, the, the camera's on you So I, I guess I'll start with you um, From where South Africa Particularly in its, in it, given its current makeup Thinking about it probably in the last few centuries
2: Oh, we go right back to Remember South Africa had always been here Long before the first uh, um, colonial explorers came so just in case anybody wondered, um, we always were at the foot of Africa. <laughs> um, some of the indigenous people from southern Africa were the Bantu-speaking people. And then we had um, two groups that were in the, in the Cape region, the Khoi and the San people, and later known as the Khoi San. Um, those were the indigenous people. The early Portuguese explorers came around the 1400s. Um, they were the first Europeans to land here. And then subsequently, there'd been a number of visitors all the way through to the to 16, 1650s, when the Dutch decided that this would be a good place to set up a replenishing station. And so they sent out a chap by the name of Jan van Riebeck, who landed at the Cape in 1652, and then established the Cape as a replenishment station for ships wanting to travel around the Horn of Africa uh, to get to the Far East. So this was on the spice route. Um, In later years, uh, more Dutch finally came out. Eventually, the British discovered that this was a good place to colonize as well. Uh, The British had annexed the Cape um, a couple of years later, and in a number of brutal wars known as the Anglo-World Wars at the turn of the 19th century, um, the British had firmly entrenched themselves. Obviously, South Africa had two great resources, gold and diamonds, and this had drawn a huge amount of attention from from the European countries. And uh, by, by the 1940s, the, the Africana nation had then begun to develop, and a government had been established um, under the Africana—I'm not sure if I need to clarify that expression, white Africana nationalist. Yeah, that'd probably
1: be a good, good thing to do.
2: Yeah. So the Dutch initially had, had begun to move further and further inland as the British had annexed the Cape. And as they, as they developed, they developed a language called Afrikaans, and so they called themselves Afrikaner. By the 1940s, the white Afrikaner folks had established themselves as a political party, and under the early British rule, they'd established themselves as a government, and had become then the dominant force in governance. In fact, they were the only force in governance. Through the Nationalist Party white government, um, apartheid laws had developed. The word apartheid was um, a term given to fairly draconian laws that insisted on the separation of people of color. And throughout the 1960s and 70s, there had then been ongoing clashes with the government and local folks because there had been a rising resistance against the oppression of this government. In 1994, we underwent a massive change. South Africa had its first democratic election, and everybody in the country was for the first time allowed to then go to the polls and vote for a new government. And that then established um, the first democratic government in the country where everybody could then participate. And so we've now gone uh, nearly 23 years, uh, well, 26 years since that since that election.
1: Okay. Well, that was a wonderful quick overview. And so what we have is we have indigenous Africans. I'm thinking about the demographics now. We have indigenous Africans. We had a British presence. We had a Dutch presence. And there really was a struggle for control of South Africa by the British and the, and the Dutch, uh, as you said, into the turnout of the 19th and into the 20th centuries. And then, uh, and then we had the emergence of the African majority that is um, now very much in, uh, in control of the politics in the country. Is that a fair summary? Very quick
2: summary? That's very, very fair. And so today we have what we call a multi-party Um, election system, so we have multiple political parties, and each of them are quite diverse in terms of the the color makeup. and so you no longer have the very strong black and white divides, but you do have a large number, and that's what the demographic of the country looks like, Um, nearly nearly more than 85% of the country are black African, and that would be made up of various indigenous groups um, known as Tosa, Zulu, Sutu, Tswana, etc., and then you have a white population that would be made up of uh, mostly folks who come, come out from Europe and had settled in the Cape back from, from the 1600s all the way through. And that would be a mix of folks from a number of very different European countries. And then you had another group of mixed people, and that's known as what we call the colored people. And those were folks who are, who had developed in the in the 1800s and beyond because of the mixed marriages and the grouping together of various color groups. There's another smaller group called Asians or Indians. And this really began because we had a number of indentured laborers being brought out from India to work in the sugarcane farms on the east coast of the country. So we really have four groups within the the bigger demographic, black Africans, which make up the larger percentage, um, white South Africans, Colored South Africans and Indian South Africans.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you brought in the Indians. I was going to ask about that. So that most people are completely unaware of that who live outside the country. So that's um, that's interesting and, and important to know. Well, one of the reasons we want to do this is to get a sense for the kind of the um, the mix of the environment and uh, population of uh, uh, of uh, South Africa. Michael, I'm going to ask you this question, because I know you've been counting since the last time we did did a podcast. So, population of the country as a whole?
0: Roughly 60 million. Okay. You know, is that close enough?
1: Yeah, that's very, um, very, very good. Say, which 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 makes it, I mean, if you were put that, for example, in European standards, would make it a very large European country as well. I mean, uh, I think... Um, Germany has 80 million, so I'm so that's a it's an interesting number, um, and uh, I'll go I'll do it in this order, how and then how many different languages are you dealing with in the country and and I guess I'm asking the languages that would be dominant in the country and then also kind of the level of how many dialects are we dealing with and I don't need specific numbers here but more more generally. <clears throat>
0: 11 official languages, which is a rather interesting number. I would say a lot of dialects. Maybe Neil would be better place to talk about that. But I'd say for most people, English or Afrikaans would be a second language. For the most part, um, well, second to fourth language, most of the people would have English higher up the list than Afrikaans, although in Neil's context, there are a lot of people who are first language Afrikaans.
1: Okay. And and uh, one of the things that struck me, I remember when we took our tour of, of the Soweto area and was there the last time, uh, our guide uh, a young African woman, uh, was walking through the variety of African, indigenous African languages that exist in the country. So once you get past the two that you mentioned, Afrikaans and English, you've got a variety of indigenous African languages, that some of which has some really interesting sounds attached to the Vanille, uh, um, uh, and she was teaching us some words. Um, and, and with clicking sounds and that kind of thing. So very different kind of sounding language. The point being that um, that South Africa is really a quite a mix of cultures, isn't it, Neil?
2: Absolutely. Um, if you think just about the 11 languages, the 11 official languages, English and Afrikaans being two of them, um, you have a number of African languages. Um, Zulu probably being the most dominant. Uh, the second most dominant would probably be Kosa speaking, and your Zulu speaking people would have been descendants of Dingan and Shaka and Setroya. And then, of course, you have your kosa speaking people that were slightly further south from the southern east coast of the country, um, area called Transkai and Siskai. And the Cosa speaking people, you'd find that the language has a lot more clicks, it's not a difficult language to learn. But you'd have to learn to get your tongue around the clicks, <laughs> And then there's a number of smaller groups. Um, there's it's sutu There's there's North and South Sutu There's Bepe Saperi. There's, oh, yeah, I could listen. There's Tswana. But it actually goes on to a number of others. And then we have multiple dialects. Um, you know, even if you took Afrikaans on its own, you'll probably find that we have various strains of Afrikaans, depending on which part of the country you're in.
1: So uh, the point being that there really is such a challenging cultural mix, and, and to, th- you know, most people think, well, South Africa it's a singular country with a singular, um, singular culture, but it's actually quite a mix of cultures that you're dealing with, and that the church is having to cope with as well.
2: Right, right, absolutely. Yeah. So certainly, language is one one way to differentiate between the various groups of folks that we have. Um, and then, of course, color has been one of the huge divides,
1: right. so, so, um, well, most people are aware of, I, I think the at least some of the history uh, related to color and race, and then uh, but I think most people are completely unaware of the. Cultural differences and even the sub differences among the various groups that exist in the country, which, as I said, produces challenges for the church. Let me quickly, Michael, you're our you're our demographics man today. Uh, talk about some of the large cities in in uh, in South Africa. I'm going to challenge you with a question you may or may not know the answer to, and that is. What are the five largest cities in the in the country? And more, and let's do, I'll just ha- held you responsible for the population of Johannesburg and maybe the Cape Town areas.
0: Well, let me say that you've possibly made the wrong choice of person who's your demographics <laughs> expert, but the major cities, amongst the major cities would be Johannesburg, Pretoria, Cape Town, and Durban. There are um, other cities like uh, Port Elizabeth, East London. Neil, what
2: would be the next biggest after? Uh, Brunfontein, uh, Brunfontein, Kimberley, and uh, Peter Maritzburg.
1: Okay, And then some people have heard of Stellenbosch, which is in the wine country area, so that's a, where, where the university resides, at least one of the prominent universities of South Africa. Um, so, and then, and then what's interesting about the Johannesburg area um, is um, it's a big area. Uh, I think you told me uh, six or seven million or seven or eight million, right, um, Michael, in terms of size?
0: So on your last podcast, I said multiple millions and the challenge is just where you measure and how you count them. So in my most recent count, which you referred to, let's say seven and a half million, but it really depends who's included in the greater Johannesburg area, because you have like Soweto, which can be measured with Johannesburg um, and a number of other townships and adjoining areas. So... Um, I'd say seven to eight million is probably a safe figure to use for the greater Johannesburg area.
1: And then the, another interesting feature of Johannesburg is, of course, Johannesburg was the capital and very much the economic center of the country for a very long time. And um, and uh, the last time we were we were with you all there in South Africa, we spent some time in Santon, which is which is al- almost. Uh, it strikes me as a city that just kind of emerged uh, in the country in a very new uh, kind of uh, major secondary economic center, or maybe it is the economic center now of the country, um, uh, that uh, that is exists within Johannesburg, but is almost its own uh, separate community.
0: Yeah, so... I think if you let, let's take a step back. If you excluded Soweto and those kind of places, you would probably end up with a couple of million people in Johannesburg. If you number them separately, Santon has become the banking and business. Uh, let, let's say, let's say. Um, Financial services types of businesses, head offices of multinationals, a lot of those businesses are now headquartered in Sanson um, although some would still be in the historical town area of Johannesburg, the central business district. But generally, um, Sandton is where a lot of the tertiary educated professional type professional services types of companies would be based. Um, A lot of investment companies are based in the Cape because it is beautiful, um, near to the Wineland's um, fantastic topography in terms of mountain and ocean and that, whereas Johannesburg is not necessarily the most beautiful city in the world. Um, Then some of these other major Durban would be fairly major in terms of commerce as well, but a lot of people also from the rest of Africa tend to find their way to South Africa looking for job opportunities and so forth. So that's another factor to take into account in terms of understanding demographics that we have a lot of Zimbabwean people and a lot of people from elsewhere in the continent who have come to South Africa and often to Johannesburg to pursue opportunity.
1: Now, um, yeah. Neil, I think I'm right about this, that um, that South Africa is the second largest country in population in Africa. Am I right about that, or is it the largest? No, we're not
2: the Nigeria largest. I mean, Nigeria Nigeria is much bigger than us. I'm not sure what the numbers are, but Nigeria would have a higher population.
1: That's than what Africa. I thought. Uh, and, and so... Um, uh, and like i say it's uh, it's it's an interesting country with an interesting mix and an interesting culture so let's step back let's talk about the church a little bit in the mix in this mix that we've talked about because that's part of why we call this a global perspectives fo- focus and we're really trying to understand both the country and the function of the church in the country um <clears throat> leading well christian makeup to begin with and uh kind of the leading denominational presence in the country i don't know who to ask this to um, who knows those those statistics, Neil? Maybe maybe you're aware of this.
2: Well, let me take you to the to the history of the church in Southern Africa. Um, when the when the Dutch arrived in the 1600s, they obviously needed to bring missionaries with them to help take care of the families that began to resettle in the Cape. And they the the first church was actually not the Dutch Reformed Church. The, there were some Lutherans who had come out. There were some Germans who had come out um, during that period, and they had settled in the Cape Colony as well. And before the first Dutch Reformed Church was actually established, the Lutherans were allowed to worship in a church that was in the, in the, in the colony. And so the first evangelical, or the first Christian community that was established was actually the Lutheran community. Now, the Germans came with a number of skills, um, they brought the leather the tanning industry with them they brought farming skills with them they brought some meat drying skills with them which is probably why today we enjoy bolton but they were the first they were the first christian community that worshipped but they were not recognized by the dutch leaders at the time and the first church which then became the official church of the of the colony was in the dutch reformed church and they were established several years later and they built the first church in cape town so their missionaries were the first to establish. And whenever they, wherever they, their folks had traveled during the time of the great trek out of the Cape to find other parts of the land where they could settle, missionaries would have gone with these families. And wherever they landed, they established mission stations. So when you traveled around the Cape, um, many of the towns around the Cape would have started off as little mission stations, and you'll still find a Dutch Reformed church, in the center of these towns with all of the major buildings clustered around them. And so you'd have a Dutch-reformed church with a tall steeple, and the post office and the general store were all situated very close by. But of course, with the Lutherans, um, they, their missions, enterprises had spread. And very soon there were Swiss missionaries who'd come out as well. And the French Huguenots brought some missionaries with them too. So by the 1820s, There were a number of foreign missionaries that were then working at stations all over Southern Africa. There'd also been a keen interest in reaching out to the indigenous people in the Eastern Cape, on the Eastern frontier particularly. And so if you go to the Eastern Cape today, you'll still find a great number of mission stations that were established by either the Dutch Reformed churches or the Lutheran churches or the Moravians, because then Zinzendorf had started sending people out as well. And so those would have been the early roots of the, of the church. Um, by, by, the, by the turn of the century, there'd been a number of denominations that had been, been dominant, but the Dutch Reformed Church would have been dominant up until that time.
3: This episode is brought to you by the Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like,
1: If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican.
3: Huh. That raises an interesting question. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com.
1: And so how has that changed now and what is the... um, Estimated evangelical pop. Well, total Christian population and evangelical population in in South Africa.
2: Yeah, I'll have to think about that very carefully because it's very difficult to separate those those demographics. Um, generally, folks think of themselves. You know, South Africa still thinks of itself as a Christian country, but in fact, we're not. <laughs> the reality is that the Dutch Reformed Church has lost a lot of momentum because. It had also been the church that was in, that was driven by the govern by the government, the apartheid government. And so they'd lost credibility over the years. Um, they'd probably still be amongst the wealthiest of the churches in the country at the moment. Um, but their numbers would be, would be greatly reduced. There had been a, a breakaway group from the, from the Dutch Reformed churches that made up the, the black church, that reached out to the black church. And even into the colored communities. And names like Alan Busack might be familiar. Um, he'd been the moderator of the one of the one of the groups that had led the colored section of the Dutch Reform Mission Church. And they were very instrumental in the anti-apartheid struggle. The, the other churches that have grown, if I were to draw a distinction between evangelical churches and other mainline churches, then your Pentecostal church and charismatic churches have probably grown to the point where they may even have overtaken the numbers of your of your more conservative churches. Mm.
1: Interesting. And, and what kind of percentage of the population is actively um, attending church?
2: You know, I saw some stats that were put out by the Operation World a couple of years ago And it actually places South Africa with a 35% evangelical focus. Hmm.
1: That's actually pretty large in relationship to most countries. Um, you know, the
2: evangelical that would include sorry, Donald, that would, would, would include uh, Pentecostals, Charismatics. Right. they would all fall under the, under the banner of evangelical. Sure, uh,
1: and and Michael, I know you've uh, since you've been our bean counter today. Um, uh, I know that you looked up some statistics about the growth of the church. I think in Africa in general and in South Africa in particular. Um, what are those statistics?
0: Well, let me over time. So I'll fill in a couple of other statistics. So, um, population of Nigeria is roughly 200 billion people. So, South Africa is just under 60. It was a few years ago that the gross domestic product GDP of Nigeria surpassed South Africa. But for quite some time, South Africa had the highest amongst Africa. And obviously, per capita, that means that South Africa was the wealthiest probably still is the wealthiest, although there's substantial uh, difference between—substantial inequalities. Um, In terms of professing Christians in South Africa, I think it would be about three-quarters of the population, um, basically what Neil said, somewhere 70 to 80%. But that would include everyone who— Who self-processes
1: and simply says, I'm a Christian.
0: Uh, yeah, and there would also be certain, um, certain. I would almost say, syncretistic African forms of church, um, various uh, denominations, so mainline Pentecostal uh, Christians have grown dramatically throughout Africa. And I think that the stat I mentioned to you, that you um, were asking about is something that came from the International Bulletin of Missionary Research around 2017, and my friend Bob Yarborough first drew attention to it, that around the year 1900, um, African Protestant Christians made up about 1.7 percent of global Protestants. By 2000, it was over 33 percent, 33 and a half percent um the projection at the time of this report was that by 2017 over 40 percent of global Protestants would be on the African continent and by 2050 over 50 percent. Now that doesn't that doesn't include all of um, Africans in who are dispersed elsewhere in the world for work and other reasons um, and often that's where you have, church growth in Western countries, but the vast majority of those Christians, I guess you would say, would be some sort of charismatic Pentecostal. A lot of those people are influenced by American exports like um, TBN, Trinity Broadcasting Network. Um, And... I think in the South African context, and maybe Neil wants to say something about this, a lot of the Christianity is inch deep. So it often isn't very tied to the Bible and solid theology, and it often isn't very transformational when it comes to people's ethics, um, particularly in the area of sexual relationships but also in terms of business dealings, um, South Africa has one of the highest violent crime um, uh, stats uh, highest crime proportions in the world were played by corruption, so that number of three-quarters of the population being Christian is far more notional than it is real.
1: Okay, that's that's a wonderful overview, which allows me to ask what will probably be the time for our la- final set of questions, and it has to do with— um, what are the uh, what are the greatest challenges for the church today in South Africa? I realize this is a very broad question, uh, but uh, and and what are some of the successes that the church is experiencing? And how is um, how is the growth of the church coming? And I'm hearing uh, in what uh, uh, Michael was raising um, the influence of. Uh, of a heavily charismatic environment that also moves into areas like prosperity, theology, and that kind of thing, which, is, I know, is one of the challenges of the country. Uh, I get much more, uh, when I'm in South Africa, I get more and more questions that deal with kind of those areas than I would ever get, generally speaking, here in the States. Neil, um, talk about the uh, kind of the state of the church as you see it, and then the challenges for the church.
2: Something that I didn't mention and Mike picked up by talking about the stats is that you can't ignore the fact that a large portion of that Christian community are what we call the Zionist churches or the independent African churches. And your Zionist churches probably number close to 9 million people mm. um, out, of the, out of the total. Well, Let's they, they speak about adherence. And that makes up a huge percentage of that what we call this 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 Christian community, um, Zionism. We and by
0: the know, way, these are not Zionists who believe that God has a plan just, for Israel. Just, or right, it's a like completely that. different it's use of the know. term.
1: So let's let's that probably that's helpful. Neil, help us understand yeah. what what is meant by Zionism in South Africa.
2: I should have I should have made that clear from the beginning. Yeah, I often forget that um, when people say Zion, you think of the connection with Israel. Now it's really just a name given to the African independent churches, but largely the practice is syncretistic, and so syncretism would be one of the biggest problems that you have to deal with within this larger group. So when we're talking about some of the challenges that you're facing, it's not just the the, the stuff that we've inherited through the prosperity gospel and the health, you know, the health and prosperity movements. Um, but it's also been the syncretism within the church where there's been the worship of ancestors as well and and the two being brought together the worship of God through an ancestor the the numbers there are phenomenal and when you look at I mean there's one of the largest group that ever gets together normally happens over the Easter weekend every year and they meet at a place called Moriah up in the northern part of the country and more than a million people gather at that gathering every year Um huge show of strength, Um, they're governed by a a bishop, um, but the practices are are syncretistic. So when you talk about the challenges, there'll be massive challenges in terms of how people understand evangelical Christianity, uh, what they they understand by that, and then you have the challenge of the influences of uh, some of these other movements that that have infiltrated the church over the years. You know, when you look at some of the more traditional churches, your Anglican, your Methodist churches, over the years, while they had had a lot of stability for a number of years, the influences of these movements have seeped into these churches, and so the standards of of what they believe have been have been flickered away. You'll probably find that um, there's 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 not a lot of clarity in terms of their understanding of the scriptures. There, there's been a lack of training where there's been a focus on, on sound biblical training. Um, I'm part of a, a Bible school there's where, where student numbers are just very low. It's always been fairly conservative. I don't know of any Bible school that has excessive numbers that are making massive impacts um, when it comes to the teaching and training of, of leaders, of biblical leaders. And so that's probably the one area that has mostly eroded over the years. If you look at just the the number of denominations that we have across the country, um, it's not very different from from what you have in the United States. Yeah. But if you started with your biggest numbers being amongst the your your African traditional churches, and then some of your mainland churches, your Dutch, your Catholic church would be fairly large amongst those, and then coming down from there, the Anglican Church, the Methodist Church, and then a whole host of others. Uh, Presbyterians are very few in number, uh, probably less than something percent of that total body. Um, and then all the independent churches that, that, that flow out from there would not even make up that huge number, but the huge bulk of it would be about 25% would be Zionists.
1: Wow. Okay, but well, that, that helps again, us... Let me let me let me ask one final question. This is for Michael. I know we talked about this statistic earlier, and uh, and by the way, you used a phrase earlier that I should clarify. The tertiary education, I'm assuming, is college and and uh, gr- graduate degrees. Um, I don't know if we use that term here. Um, sometimes they have to translate the English, uh, and then. Um, uh, but you said that the number of people who've had formal ministry training versus the number of pastors in the country, just compare those two numbers briefly for us. I mean that that just hearing those numbers I think um, points out an issue.
0: So the the number was roughly nine million uh, sorry, roughly 9 thousand uh, trained pastors. Um, meaning trained through university, which would include more liberal institutions. So let's just say, let, let's just make it easy and half that. So let's say 4,500 um, might be more solidly trained and more conservative, and that may be a generous number, but there are roughly 200,000 pastors in the country. And many of those would be in rural areas or township um, type of areas. And I think to contextualize um, what I said about about Protestants in Africa, let's assume that trends continue and it is 50% of world Protestants. The real issue is what kind of Christianity will we have on the continent? And in terms of biggest issues, I guess, To simplify, it's always to do with the Bible and Christ. So um, do we link following the Christ who is revealed in the Scriptures with being students of God's Word, rightly handling the Word, and is Christ sufficient? In other words, is it Christ plus all kinds of mystical add-ons, syncretism, as Neil was saying, um, is it sort of some vague notion of Jesus that's removed from what the Bible says about him, who he is, what he's done, and what he requires of his people. And so there is a huge need, as there is everywhere in the world, for discipleship and specifically for training of those in leadership positions And there is very, very little funding or emphasis that goes into those areas. I'd say very little awareness of African Christianity from um, elsewhere in the world, unless there are people who have a personal connection like yourself. Hmm.
1: Well, this has been fascinating to kind of give us a quick—and it is very, very quick— Tour of South Africa I find it one of the most fascinating places In the world to visit And I'm in a lot of countries On a regular basis And of course it's been a real joy To pop in to visit you all In South Africa On a, on a, on a every other year basis Which we've missed this time Because of COVID uh, But uh, I look forward to Seeing you all again And I thank you for taking the time With, uh, with us to discuss South Africa Neil, uh, Michael Thank you very, very much For for, for helping us get a, a little bit of a grasp on what on what um, the nature of um, South Africa as a country and the, the challenges for the church in that country.
0: Thanks for having us.
2: Thank you,
3: Battle.
1: And we thank you for being a part of The Table, and we hope you'll join us again soon. If you have enjoyed uh, this podcast, we'd ask you to subscribe and leave a review. That helps us. And if you want to find out more about The Table, you can visit voice.dts.edu slash tablepodcast, and you'll get access to all The Table podcasts that we have uh, produced now for several years. So thank you for joining us, and we hope we'll see you again soon.
0: For listening to the Table Podcast, Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth, love well.